And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Thanks again for joining me. Today, I am sitting down with Darren Marble, who is the co-founder of the fintech firm Crush Capital and the creative force behind Going Public, a new streaming series that will follow five entrepreneurs as they attempt to take their companies public on the NASDAQ. The show is currently casting for entrepreneurs and will enable the public to invest in the companies on screen. Um, now, this is an innovative concept. Now, Darren himself is a vocal proponent of some emerging funding models funding for, business, model for business, including equity, equity crowdfunding. crowdfunding uh, his uh, insights have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street New York Times, and he was... Uh, Sorry, I don't know what I did there. Here, let me... Okay. Uh, I, it, was a, it was a little loud, so I was turning it down. Oh, right. and it unmuted. I think, it, it, I think it, I'm done fucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take three, ready to rock. All right, cool, man. I don't okay. care. I'm, I'm good. I, I'm done my day. Like, we can do this all night, but you, I don't want to miss the interview. I want to okay, get your stuff. All right, let's go. Game on. All right. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm sitting down with Darren Marble, co-founder of the fintech firm Crush Capital and the creative force behind Going Public, which is a new streaming service that will allow five entrepreneurs, uh, that will follow five entrepreneurs as they attempt to take their companies public on the NASDAQ. The show is currently casting for entrepreneurs and will enable the public to invest in the companies on screen. Um, now, this is an incredible new concept. I'm very excited to understand that and what that is all about. Darren himself is a vocal proponent of some emerging funding models for business, including equity crowdfunding. Uh, his insights have been featured on the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. He contributes to Inc. Uh, Darren, I'm really, really glad you're sitting down with me. This is an exciting topic, an exciting concept. Um, walk me through what you're doing, how you got to where we're at today, um, and, and your origin story. Well, that's, uh, that's a great intro, Scott. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be on. You know, putting this series together uh, has really been a long time coming. The essence is, just as you described, we're essentially producing the fundraising process um, associated with an IPO. The difference being here that the viewers of this series can invest into the IPOs while they're watching the show. Uh, the series is slated to stream on entrepreneur.com in the April 2021 timeframe. Season one is 10 episodes with episodes released weekly. And uh, the format is what's called a serial narrative, which means the viewers are effectively following the stories of these five founders independent of the other, cutting from one to the other to the next. And then at this, in the second half of the show, the uh, founders are uh, closing their funding rounds and uh, completing their IPOs to NASDAQ. We're filming the IPO ceremony uh, in real time at NASDAQ market site in Times Square, New York, for the companies that complete IPOs. 
And for the tens of thousands of everyday Americans who are investing into these deals, they're now liquid. And what that means is simply they have shares in these companies that they can then sell if they want to, uh, or hold on to them for 10 years if they think they've invested in the next Amazon or Google. Uh, but it actually took us about three years to get to the point of just announcing the series and finally going into a casting phase. Uh, so it's been a lot of work to get here. No, I appreciate that. And I, I you know, we always see a ton of um, excitement around startup incubators, about startup land. Uh, there's all these different emerging crowdfunding models, and we can speak about that on its own. But I've never seen, I've never seen a televised version of this, and it it, it is such a, an exciting journey for an entrepreneur to go from you know, ideation of a concept all the way through to my God, going public. That's like you know what most entrepreneurs can only dream of. Um, so how did you come to want to create a TV show around this? All the different components, entrepreneurship, uh, investment, television. What's what's your background in? I've spent the past five years uh, on the cutting edge of capital markets. I co-founded a financial marketing firm called Issuance that uh, became the market leader in marketing Regulation A-plus offerings. Regulation A-plus is a securities exemption. It was part of the 2012 Jobs Act. It allows a company to raise up to $50 million annually, permits that company to generally solicit or market their investment, and most interestingly, anyone over the age of 18 globally can legally invest into the deal. So I founded a company that became an expert in marketing investment opportunities uh, to the general public through Facebook ads, other paid media tactics, PR campaigns, trying to get a company on a podcast, in the Wall Street Journal, an interview with Jim Cramer on Mad Money, uh, and a hundred other ways. Uh, we, we've had the good fortune of experimenting early and often. And the, the, the problem that we've really been trying to solve all these years is how do we really democratize investment opportunities? And specifically, how do we democratize the IPO? And what we realized is that to actually democratize the IPO, we needed a vehicle that would make that, or you know, present these investments to millions of everyday Americans, not just a one-off Facebook ad buy or PR campaign, but you know, kind of a intellectual property or an asset that would consistently create mass awareness for the companies, their investments, their products and services. And so we came up with the concept of uh, putting them into a television series, in this case, going public. Hmm. And we came up with this concept about three years ago. We founded the business. And uh, in the last 36 months, we've had to put a lot of infrastructure in place, a production company to produce the series, an investment bank to underwrite the IPOs, uh, a technology platform that allows viewers to very you know, easily click to invest and own securities, and of course, distribution, uh, which was uh, the most recent piece that we, we've achieved by signing a distribution and promotions agreement to have season one streamed on entrepreneur.com. So none of this was easy. And it's, it's, it's funny because in, in a lot of ways, when you say, hey, we're going to do a series that allows viewers to invest in IPOs, it rolls off the tongue real nice. Uh, it sounds <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. easy. It's, it's super well, sexy, yeah, you know, like the concept. Cool you know? idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. I like the idea. Yeah. It turns out to actually get it out there and to do it in a way that is um, functioning and legal uh, and ethical, we had to bring in a multitude of service providers, which is precisely why, Scott, a show like this does not exist today. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the idea itself is simply an idea, and it required a tremendous amount of partnership and strategy 
And getting a number of companies to all align and work in the same direction uh, to get it to a point where we're now casting, we have distribution, we have production, the tech is ready, and we're really excited to get this series out there. We think it's a game changer, uh, not just for entertainment, but for capital markets uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Um, I, I, I completely agree as to all the pieces that are moving. Uh, it's so much more than just a television show, a reality TV show, right? Where you where you cast talent, you know, you're you're bringing on you're bringing on companies. You're trying to bring on companies that are going to be successful. I'm sure there's some nurture vetting process, and then once they're in this, you know, incubation environment as they're going through the show, um, they're I, maybe actually walk me through that. So, what does an entrepreneur do to be on the show? What are you looking for, and what's the sort of the, the storyline of the show before they before they IPO? We're looking for startups that have emerging brands, primarily in the consumer product or retail sector. So these are companies that might be doing 25, 50, even $100 million in sales. Um, maybe they have a physical, tangible product. Maybe it's a direct-to-consumer business. They have a strong e-commerce component to the company. Uh, and maybe they have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of existing customers. So when you talk about uh, an IPO, and in this case, it's really referred to what's known as a small cap IPO. These are smaller companies going public at earlier points in their life cycle than like an Uber or Lyft, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important that these companies have at least two years of operational history and they need to raise at least $15 million to meet NASDAQ's listing requirements. So part of our, our vetting and sourcing is based on the listing requirements for NASDAQ, um, which is the securities exchange we aim to have all of these IPOs list to. Uh, and have their shares traded on. And um, so, you know, companies that have products, customer bases, uh, easy to understand, these companies today can actually apply right now on our site, which is goingpublic.com. They can click to apply, put in their information. And interestingly, the deal has to be evaluated on a number of levels. So our team uh, at Crush Capital, we are kind of the first, we're at the top of the funnel. We're gonna look at the deal um, kind of holistically. Uh, do we like the industry? Do we like the founder or founders? Do we like the story, the business? Do we think it's an interesting or compelling investment opportunity? If we like the deal, then it goes to our producers. Production company has a different set of criteria. They're thinking about, you know, the narrative. Um, who, is there a hero story? Are these founders presentable? Are they likable? Um, what is their energy like? And then if the producers like the deal, it goes to our investment banking partner, Roth Capital, uh, here in Los Angeles, and they're looking at it from a pure investment standpoint. They don't care about the production. They're looking at it, can we underwrite this deal? What might the valuation be, pre-money, post-money? Uh, what's the price per share? What's the range? And uh, how much capital you know, do we think this company should raise in an IPO? And uh, what, what is the quality of the investment? And then do, does the deal pass a, a very rigorous due diligence process? Uh, so there's really a number of gates that the companies go through, and we're actively uh, sifting through dozens of applications looking for five great companies to take public and small cap IPOs. And I want to emphasize that we're uh, especially interested in diverse and minority founders. And I say that, Scott, because if you look at, you know, the, the landscape today, Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, there's a handful, for instance, of African-American CEOs. Uh, it's really unfortunate because the founders that I know, the companies that I hear about in the news or see on Instagram or Facebook, 
companies that are having a lot of success, uh, they, they may be minority-led or female-led. And so we are determined to have this series be reflective of the real entrepreneurial fabric here in the United States and therefore committed to casting a very diverse group of founders for the inaugural season of going public. No, I was going to say that's smart. And, and to, to double down on that point, I actually spoke on this show to, um, to a founder of a black incubator lab. He was focused on uh, not just black, but he was focused on minority groups, uh, you know, black founders, minority founders, just really underrepresented founders. And he had an incredible stat. He said, nothing to do with this, but he said it was something like less than 150 founders had received $1 million in funding, um, like minority and or black founders have received $1 million in funding in the history of the U.S which like blows my mind. And that was a data point that he could back up, which is just insane. So I, I appreciate like, I appreciate that you're doing that. Cause I think that we have to start making more efforts and this is a great, you know, this is a great platform to do that on, um, to really highlight some of these, these success stories that are, that are not obviously highlighted enough. Um, now I'm curious for the entrepreneur that's going into this, an entrepreneur goes and raises some money uh, and they usually want to find some investors that are going to provide some value to their business. What is the benefit to somebody that has, for example, 50 million ARR or, or annual recurring revenue, 100 million annual recurring revenue um, to get this crowdfunded investment? Isn't that just, is that, is that headache pre-IPO or does at that point they don't care because they're already going to be publicly listed? Turning customers into investors in an IPO is potentially the most strategic and savvy move any company in the United States can make. And we, we know this is going to be a breakthrough mechanism. When customers become investors, here's what happens. Those customers are now emotionally invested in, in the deal. They're, they're financially invested. They're literally invested in the outcome of the business. So what does that mean? It means their lifetime value to the business is going to increase those customers and now investors will buy more product, buy more services. They're less likely to use products or services from competitors. They're more likely to tell their friends, family, uh, social network that they're an investor, that they're a customer. And so the network effect uh, is tremendous. And not only that, but what we've seen over the years, Scott, is that when companies turn customers into investors and those companies end up actually going public, those investors, they tend to act like institutions, and institutions are tending, they tend to be long-term uh, you know, shareholders. They're not flippers, they're not day traders. An institution that buys $50 million in an IPO, usually long-term, they hold those shares for a number of years. They believe in the, the vision and the founder and the business opportunity down the road. They're looking ahead. Well, customers tend to act the same way. So creating a shareholder base uh, actually, in this series, it's a mix of institutional investors alongside everyday Americans, the customers of the company, the fans, the followers. They're coming in together, investing into the IPO at the IPO price. And the smart money, the institutional investors, by the way, they're not getting a discount. There's no favors. They're all buying the same shares at the same price. And these are both different constituents because the average retail investor might buy $1,000 of stock. Uh, but they act like an institution because they are buying into the vision of the company, they're a satisfied customer, they've uh, generated value or you know, received value from the product. And so 
that's really valuable for the business. So from the company standpoint, what do they have to gain by having 30 or 50,000 uh, you know, customers become investors? Well, those will be the most valuable customers uh, in the history of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are a massively uh, powerful uh, type of brand ambassador that can promote the brand. And uh, they're going to be long-term shareholders as well. So we think that this is really a winning formula for founders and entrepreneurs to empower their customers, return the favor, and it's, it's a thank you. You know, and if you think about this, it's really interesting. Um, companies like Uber and Lyft, you know, these companies that stay private for 10 years, 12 years, they raise billions of dollars uh, in venture capital uh, from uh, private investors in private markets. And, um, you know, those companies would never have multi-billion dollar valuations in private markets if it weren't for the millions of customers who use the app, yet it's the customers who are effectively left out and are always excluded from becoming owners. And uh, you and I, as you know, customers of Uber, for instance, the only thing we could do is buy shares of Uber after it went public. Yeah. Well, by that time, Scott, it's too late. The, the, the value's already been uh, realized by the early investors, and you and I uh, end up looking like the suckers because we're now holding shares of Uber that has stayed private for too long, the chances of you and I getting a 5X or 10X on our investment is slim to none. So we're changing that paradigm by allowing customers to become owners in these businesses at much earlier stages in the company's growth and in their life cycle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I just wanna highlight that point you mentioned about, uh, I didn't even think about that, but the, the point that you can turn your customers into these evangelists um, early on by getting them to invest financially. That is one of the, the strongest commercial plays you can have, regardless of, of your share pl- price, just this, the, the whole customer base being your raving fan group and, and evangelizing your products. I didn't think about that, but that's a huge, that's a huge plus to getting people, to getting your customers to buy in. So that's a very, very smart point. Um, and, and I'm just one more question about, about the show itself because uh, this all makes a ton of sense, and I think it's a, v- a very exciting story that you're going to be telling. What when somebody watches this show, what do they see? What's the like? What do they see? The operations of a of a fifty million dollar company? Do they see the struggles of a of a founder CEO? What do they see? The fundraising process, dealing with uh, the lawyers, or what? Like, what's the actual show look like? It's a great question. So the format is what's called a serialized narrative, yeah. and what that means is that in episode one we're introducing company A and company B. And the founders of these companies spend 12 minutes talking about their backstory. Almost nothing to do with the business. You know, who are they? How, why did they become founders? What inspired them to create a business? What problem were they solving? What obstacles did they have to overcome to be successful and build the business that they're now CEO of today? And what that's doing is it's really providing insight into the individual. Uh, and and helping the audience understand the character of the founder, which creates a strong emotional bond. In episode two, the first two companies begin developing the marketing materials for their campaign. We introduce company number three. In episode three, the first two founders are now going out and raising capital. They're on a roadshow with institutional investors and retail investors alike. And, you know, in the IPO process, it's, it's, it's the most intense time period in a company's history as they're going public. It's filled with drama. It's filled with excitement, disappointment, panic, euphoria. We're going to capture the excitement of that process in this series. And 
In the second half of the season, the companies closed their uh, IPOs in a staggered close, just like they were introduced in a staggered start. Mm-hmm. And we're filming the IPO ceremony at NASDAQ, and that's the culmination uh, for each of these businesses. We've brought in an incredible production company to help highlight the drama and the excitement uh, of these IPOs and the IPO process. And that company is INE Entertainment. They're based in Studio City. Uh, the principals are best known for co-creating and, and co-executive producing the hit TV series, The Biggest Loser. Mm-hmm. And so when people say to us, well, hey, the IPO process sounds a little dry. And you said, hey, what about the lawyers? Are we going to film the lawyers? Uh, what we say is, look, our producers uh, have a credit in one of the most successful television franchises in history. And that's a show about weight loss. They made weight loss exciting. So imagine what they can do with the IPO. I mean, it's a scale and their exercise. They found a way to make that really entertaining. And everybody knows Biggest Loser and it's, they have a brand and you could buy Biggest Loser branded stuff in the, it's it's everywhere. Imagine what they can do with the IPO process. So this will be a very entertaining series. And I think we're gonna bring out some of that drama and excitement to bring the viewers along the journey right there with the founders as they're going public. Very exciting. This is like my this is like my kind of TV, Darren. I want to I want to watch this already. You got to get this filmed. You got to get this because uh, I, I seriously like this. This sounds very exciting. I've never seen anything like this. I've never. I don't think there's anything like this, to be honest, at all. Well, look, I'll, I'll tell you what there is. You know, there's Shark Tank, and that's a yeah, show that's we. That's all I'm thinking. Yeah. We we all know Shark Tank, and listen, I'm a fan of Shark Tank. I love that show. I loved it from the moment it came out, and to see the judges critiquing the deal and bickering with each other. It's massively entertainment. There's no denying that. And what we believe is that it's a great show. Shark Tank will always be a great show. The model is outdated. The model is old. And at Mm -hmm. some point it will be obsolete because I think that- I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there, juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works. One data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com 
slash Scott Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, 
drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive, and I bet you we've all been there, and maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. People are tired of watching the rich people get richer. Mark Cuban <laughs> adding another you know, zero to his uh, net worth. And what are the viewers able to do? Well, they can buy the product. They can help uh, Squatty Potty go from 500,000 in sales to 50 million, but they don't, they're not getting the value, right? Because they're not owners. They don't own any shares. They don't own any equity in the business. They're just a customer. So who makes the money there? Well, the sharks make the money in those deals. So that's the parallel here is this is similar to Shark Tank in some ways. One of the differences uh, is that, of course, there are no judges. There are mentors, but there's no Mark Cuban or Kevin O'Leary bashing these entrepreneurs, trying to take advantage of them, put in 30 grand for half of the company, these ridiculous deals. Uh, it's the viewers. It's the fans that now can participate and in companies they like, they can invest. And you don't have to put in $50,000. You put in $1,000. Buy yeah. $1,000 worth of shares and then have liquidity in that investment immediately. So that's the difference. And then the companies themselves, we're not featuring pre-product or pre-revenue companies. We're featuring companies that have traction, have millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars in revenue, are ready to go public to NASDAQ. Different different segment of the market. Yeah. Um, I, I have a technical question before I learn a little bit more about, because uh, I want to go a little bit deeper into, into your entrepreneurial journey and what you've sort of learned both yourself and by working with all these companies, some just some insights for people that are listening that are, are doing their own thing. But I want to understand a technical point. Um, one thing that I, I, you know, we spoke before about direct listings, hype around direct listings. I don't understand that enough to ask the question properly. So if somebody is more knowledgeable than me, and there's a lot of them out there that are listening to this and they're, they're understanding that you're doing this for NASDAQ listings, what is a direct listing and why is there an issue with entrepreneurs falling into this trap of wanting to do that with their company? Well, look, I, I don't think it's a trap, um, but it's basically an IPO without the O. There's no offering. So in a direct listing, a company lists its existing shares uh, to the NASDAQ or to the New York Stock Exchange, but there's no capital that's raised. So what that means is that there's no new shares that are being offered. It's simply the insiders. Who are the insiders? Well, that's the venture capitalists that own 30 or 40% of the business. That's the founders. And that's the employees. 
So those three segments, those three constituents, VCs, founders, employees, list their shares, uh, and now there's there's liquidity. And, you know, look, I think direct listings could be a good fit for some companies. It has to be a company, to be very clear, that doesn't need money, right? Because again, there's no offering. The company doesn't raise a dollar in a direct listing. So when you look at the companies that have successfully completed direct listings, um, Spotify and Slack, these companies had a lot of cash. They had strong balance sheets. I believe that most companies are not in the position of Slack. They're not in the position of Spotify. They need to raise capital. They need 50 million. They need 500 million. Whatever that number is, that's kind of the purpose of an IPO is you're going out and you're raising new money for the business in addition to having liquidity. Um, one of the things I think that attracts uh, venture capitalists to a direct listing, there's no lockup on their shares. They can mm. immediately sell into the market. So they like that. In a traditional IPO, yeah. insiders have, you know, 180 day or typically a six month lockup. You know, and then I think the big thing that, that venture capitalists often complain about is that in an IPO, there's a pop. If the stock is at $10 a share and then immediately the shares go up and they're trading at $18 or $20 a share, a VC might say, all that, you know, that gap, that $10 spread, that was money left on the table, should have gone to the business. Now, I don't think that's entirely accurate. And listen, uh, here's my standpoint. W when you see a lot of venture capitalists doing a media tour and they're on CNBC, I think the public should be very skeptical. What, what is this venture capitalist trying to sell me? Or why, why are they talking about this model? Who wins in that model? Who wins? The, the venture capitalists win. That's why they like direct listings. Um, you know who doesn't win in that model? The customers. Customers don't win. Find me one venture capitalist that will tout the benefits of a direct listing for customers, and you won't find any because there are zero. The direct listing is an insider's game. It benefits the insiders. Those are the holders of stock. Those are the VCs, the founders, and the employees. The customers, again, left out of the equation. So for certain companies that don't need cash, uh, for some companies that have a, a great brand, and by the way, Spotify and Slack, big brands people know. Uh, those types of businesses could be a good fit for a direct listing. But if you don't have that kind of brand, and if you need to raise money, and if you care about your customers, and if you feel your customers deserve an opportunity to participate in the upside of your business, direct listing is not for you. You should be doing an IPO. Hey, it's Scott here. I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of our show, Teachable. What is teachable? Well, let me start with this. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that nothing is for sure. Nothing is a guarantee. Everything was flipped on its head, including our job security. A lot of people realized that brick and mortar had to move online, had to move digital. And those jobs that we've had for 20 plus years weren't so secure. So what do we do? How do you future proof? Well, you start your own thing. You build your own business. It doesn't have to be completely replacing your nine to five. It could just be a side hustle, but you are finding ways to productize yourself, your knowledge and things that you can sell to people that can benefit them, that will allow you to bring in multiple streams of revenue and income. So how do we do that? Well, Teachable is the platform that allows you to productize and monetize your knowledge. It allows independent entrepreneurs and creators to build and sell fully customizable online courses and services. You are taking what you know, 
you are building courses, you're using Teachable, and you are monetizing your years of experience. There are over 100,000 instructors and creators who have transformed their knowledge into world-class courses, and Teachable has paid out over $500 million. To help get you started, as a special offer for everybody who's listening to the podcast today, visit teachable.com backslash success and enter your email for a free seven-step guide walking you through the exact steps you can take to create your own online school and start making money based on what you already know. That's teachable.com backslash success. Enter your email for a free checklist to help get your online school started. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense to me. Thanks for, for clearing that up. And that's also something if, you know, founders as well, Uh, they, they rely on the advice of venture capitalists with their first time founders or, you know, even multiple serial entrepreneurs. Um, so that's just a, a, like a, a note to take home if somebody's telling you differently. That's, uh, I like that point a lot. Um, is there something uh, that I'm not aware of with going public or crush capital that you wanted to you wanted to speak about before um, I go in a little bit more about your career and insights or, or do we cover a lot? I think that's it. You know, we're actively casting for companies. We're looking for incredible founders to showcase. Um, we're a few weeks out from announcing a host. We're a few weeks out from announcing the first company that will be in season one of going public. But I think we covered a lot of it. It, it sounds easy. Uh, was actually not easy. It took about <laughs> it three years. It doesn't sound easy. Yeah. You're crazy. It doesn't sound easy at all, man. Yeah. I mean, it's like I mean, a it's lot like of work. The pitch is easy. It's like, oh, we're yeah. going to series. People invest. And like, I get it, you know. Uh, but we, we, we've done the heavy lifting and we're just thrilled to be uh, at the point we are and, and finally talking to companies and looking at their businesses so we can take them out and take them public. Yeah. Um, so let, I appreciate that. So let's, so first of all, I'll link some of the stuff below in the notes for sure. Um, and then you're going to have to keep me updated so I can, so I can sync this up with the, with when new announcements are coming out. Cause I want, I want to, I want to tune into this as well. Um, Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. No, my pleasure. I'm, I'm being honest. It sounds like a very, very cool, fun show to watch. I'm excited for this. Um, now, for people that are listening that are uh, entrepreneurs, CXOs, founders, or just thinking about ever even doing something on their own, your entrepreneurial journey, um, lessons learned with past companies uh, or other companies you've worked with, I'm curious uh, as to what you know, you've sort of learned over your career. What works? You know, what it's, doesn't? It's, uh, why? it's a great question. Um, I, I started my first company, Scott, 10 years ago, and literally just now, today, I've hit my stride. 10 years <laughs> later, <laughs> not a year into it, not even two years ago, like now, where we're, everything's working uh, 10 years after the fact. Uh, I've got a number of takeaways, and this is one of those things where I don't think you learn this stuff in college. I don't think you learn it um, in uh getting an MBA. I don't think you learn it in a book or an ink article. You have to do it. And that's just the reality of being an entrepreneur. You have to fail. You have to fail early and often, and you have to be massively resilient and learn from your failures, get back up and don't make the same mistake again. Um, and if you do, don't make it a third time. Cause that, you know, that's when you get into some real problems if you're not learning from mistakes. So what are some takeaways? Uh, one, Don't found a tech company without a tech co-founder. So I made that mistake in my first company. Two non-techies wanted to build a website and a social networking site. It was a little bit of a disaster because neither of us were technical. <laughs> so we said, shoot, we, we need a technical co-founder. So we spent you know, six months trying to find a person. Don't do that. Find the founder, find the technical founder first. Um, you know, I think 
in general, the, the, the biggest, the single biggest mistake most founders make is probably this. They solve a problem um, that isn't really a problem, meaning there's no market for the product or service. Or if there is, it's very niche, it's very small. And, and part of the key to building a company is to solve a problem that a lot of people have. That doesn't mean you and your friend. It means you, your friend, and hundreds of millions or billions of people. Solve a problem that uh, is a problem in a big market. That's how you can build a valuable business. And I think um, a lot of companies solve problems that, that aren't genuinely problems, and so the business doesn't work. Uh, another mistake founders make, they get obsessive about raising money too early in their uh, trajectory. They think the point of a startup is to raise venture capital. Um, that is completely false. The point of a business is to try to make more money than you spend in a month, in a year, in a lifetime. And it, again, sounds easy, oh, you know, make more than you spend. Really hard to do in the real world. So rather than try to raise money to start a company, the better approach is to solve a real problem that a lot of people have and get paid for solving that problem. There's nothing that solves or cures ills uh, like sales, closing a deal, sending an invoice, getting paid to deliver a service, uh, charging a customer for a product on a website. The faster you can get to revenue, the faster you will build a real business. The more you focus on raising money, raising money, pitching VCs, the longer it will take you to actually get to product market fit and have a business that generates real traction. So don't start a tech company without a tech co-founder. Uh, don't solve a problem in a small market. Don't solve a problem that isn't a real problem. And maybe for the early stage uh, founders, stop pitching people for money and start getting paid for solving that problem and generating revenue. Because you know what happens? When you generate revenue, the, the investors come to you. That's how you know that your business is working. That's what you want. You don't want to be seeking investors every day, every week. You want the investors coming to you. Scott, read about your business. I, I'm, a, I'm a customer of the product. You guys raising money? This looks like a cool product, yeah. a cool company. That's the better approach. They, they'll get in on that, on that, uh, on that bandwagon if it's, if it's going the right direction. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That, that's very smart. Now, um, you know, as you, as you work with these, these are not, these are not so much entrepreneurs, I guess the ones I, now that you're taking them through to, to IPO and NASDAQ, they're not early stage. Um, but do you, do you still, do you still ever work with some, some younger starter companies and do you still learn from them or is it mostly now you're focused on uh, later stage entrepreneurs? You know, Crush Capital is uh, generally focused on those later stage founders. And again, these, these terms are all relative. They mean different things to different people. Yeah. Say so Crush Capital is looking at companies with 25 to 100 million in sales. Um, my marketing firm, Issuance, you know, which still operates and is, is a market leader today, that company works often with earlier stage pre-product, pre-revenue companies, runs successful Reg A plus financings to the tune of 10, 20, even $25 million. Uh, and the answer is yes, we absolutely learn from every deal we do. Um, every founder uh, has something to offer, whether they're, uh, they started the company today or they've been at it for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I've always appreciated is you're always learning as a founder and you can absolutely learn from others. In fact, those are some of the best people to learn from is people that have been doing it longer than you have had more success than you. 
Um, so, you know, I've got my idols and people that uh, I look up to in business and, uh, you know, some icons of entrepreneurship. Um, even my co-founder, Todd Goldberg, is a mentor to me in a number of ways. I'm very lucky to say I have a business partner who's a mentor to me. He's a few years older. He's got a few more years of, of sales and enterprise sales experience than I do. And, you know, you, you learn from your founders, your partners, uh, your, your clients. And it's just, uh, you know, trying to give that back, I think, is an important part of the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. No, very well said. Um, I have a few more uh, a rapid fire uh, life lesson questions, if you will. If we can, we can finish up with some of these because that was a really, really good chat. Thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. Um, it was very, very good. Now, yourself, this is just so that people can, can have a, a pulse on, on your serial entrepreneur, quite successful over your career. Where do you go to learn and stay on top of things um, in your role? I'm an avid reader. Um, I read every day and my, the content I consume is online. It's on Twitter. Uh, it's on different industry sites. The way I became an expert in my industry is by consuming uh, a mass amount of information consistently over time and then applying that knowledge into the real world, into the deals we were doing that we were signing uh, and delivering. So I, uh, I watch a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of founders. Um, I read books. Uh, but I consume a lot of just, you know, kind of short form content. That's how I stay up to date uh, in my industry in particular. Okay, good. And what is one area in the world of uh, startups, entrepreneurship, or venture capital that you're currently investigating that's new that you're interested about? That's a good question. Um, what's an area in, in our industry that we're investigating you know, look, I, I think the direct listing phenomenon, it's, it's very technical, um, and I don't think it's a mainstream concept, but it's, um, it's often talked about by very influential and successful Silicon Valley venture capitalists. It's a topic I'm fascinated by. I want to know why VCs think that's a better model. I want to know why they don't like the IPO model. What do they think of our model? Do they believe that customers deserve an opportunity to become investors? So I would say direct listings intrigue me. SPACs, uh, special purpose acquisition companies intrigue me. Any uh, mechanism that allows a company to go public, list shares, whether they're raising capital or not, uh, you know, be a public company is something that I'm very curious about and investigating you know, regularly. Uh, mm -hmm. And a lot of that's coming from, from VCs uh, in Silicon Valley and folks like Bill Gurley, and he's written a lot about it and he talks a lot about it on Twitter. And just, you know, trying to be uh, in the dialogue or at least watching the dialogue. And um, that's, that's something that's top of mind. Good. Um, what, is, what is a lesson you would tell your younger self that would help you get here perhaps a little bit quicker? Prepare to be very patient and disappointed uh, early because, you know, I, I came from a, a very successful career in enterprise sales. I was selling uh, Oracle software for a decade to Fortune 500 companies. And I was, you know, sourcing and signing multi-million dollar software and services contracts. And that gave me um, an overconfidence transitioning into a founder. And I thought that well, look, if I can sell a CFO on a $3 million Oracle contract, surely I can go out and run a business and raise capital from a VC down the street. 
all of those things turned out to be uh, very false. <laughs> and the sales cycle is different. You know, when you work for the world's largest software company, it's actually not that hard to go in and say, hey, you know, go buy this $3 million best in world software package. That's very different than going down the street to a VC and say, hey, I've never done this. I don't have a product. I just met this guy. We're, we're now founders. You want to put money into our business? It's a totally different pitch. Um, so I would just, uh, you know, if I were to talk to my younger self, I'd say be patient uh, because it's going to take some time to, to get, get in the groove. Yeah, good, good advice as well. Um, and, and last question, what does success mean to you? Success for us is changing the way that companies go public. And it is um, seeing everyday Americans have an equal opportunity to invest into companies whose products and services they use in their everyday lives. Americans have been hit especially hard in this uh, economy with COVID. Uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies are now out of business, permanently closed. Americans are looking for a way to get back to normal, a way to recover. If going public can be part of the solution and we can serve up quality investments to help Americans do that, to get back to normal or even uh, further than they were before financially, that's our goal. It's really to level the playing field. Uh, and we think that the time is now. Uh, Shark Tank model is old. Going public model is uh, the future of capital markets. And uh, we want to have as many people uh, as possible exposed to this series and have an opportunity uh, to make investments in the companies uh, you know, they're interested in, in investing in. Very good. And most importantly, where do people go to connect with you? Uh, any of your socials, website, all of that? Companies that want to learn more about the series can go to goingpublic.com. They can also apply uh, through that website to submit their business for consideration. I'm most active on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, at Darren Marble. That's it. Going public, okay. LinkedIn, and Twitter. Come find me, connect. And uh, if I can be a resource to anyone who's listening to this podcast in any way, it would be, uh, it would be my honor. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. 
Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely 
drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive, and I bet you we've all been there, and maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real, there are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 